Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. For nearly three decades, Christopher Knight lived deep in the Maine woods, undetected by nearby residents and summer campers. As the years passed, he became a regional legend, the North Pond Hermit nobody had ever seen. Finally, one determined game warden set a trap he couldn't escape. Thousands of miles away, his capture captivated writer Michael Finkel, whose new book not only tells the true-life details of Knight's self-imposed cloistered life, but tries to answer the question, why? The Stranger in the Woods, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit, is our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Michael Finkel joins me here in studio. Michael, welcome to Under the Radar. Thank you so much, Callie. Happy to be here. Well, Let me just say, I only do books for my book club that I enjoy, and this one is off the charts. This is a page turner. I just could not put it down, and I had to live my life, so I had to put it down at some point before I could finish it. My goodness, when they say truth is stranger than fiction, here's the story of that. So let's start at the beginning. Christopher Knight, a.k.a. the North Pond Hermit, living undetected for all those years. Tell us who he is and how he came to be a hermit. Yeah, so the legend of the hermit, as you mentioned, persisted for like 27 years. In this community in central Maine, there was like, you know, there was like the Loch Ness Monster, the Himalayan Yeti, and the North Pond Hermit. And it was as if the Yeti just strolled into town. So it was like, it was this phenomenal thing that happened in uh, central Maine. And then the strange thing is that the myth seemed to be less interesting than the man himself. Every single thing he told the authorities, which wasn't much, seemed confounding that he had spent 27 years completely alone in the woods of Maine, and we know how cold it gets. Imagine, uh, you know, hanging out in the snow for even one day. He did it for 27 years without lighting a fire, without leaving a footprint, never spoke to anyone, never touched anyone, never sent an email. Every single thing he said seemed to, as you just said, seemed to be stranger than any fiction. So... What about that first little story you read about his capture, because it was after the capture that we got these fine details, that made you say, hmm, I just got to know more about this guy. I mean, the story, of course, was, you know, became like a regional sensation and then a statewide in Maine and then uh, national and then international. I read about it and uh, I grew up, I spent most of my life in Montana, another cold state like Maine. I spent a lot of time camping and uh, a lot of time reading and then I had three children in three years, so uh, as lovely and wonderful as they are, you don't get to spend a lot of time outside. Everything I heard about this guy kind of piqued my curiosity, but there was one item that really like threw me from curious to sort of journalistic obsession, and that was that he stole hundreds, perhaps thousands of books. And that is really not the image that we have of the hermit. I mean, when you describe him, He's not at all what I'm thinking, and I'm thinking what most people would think of, disheveled, nonverbal, crazy-looking guy. Not at all. I think Chris Knight, as his name is, is an outlier in so many ways that it's, like, hard to wrap your head around him. His solitude was so extreme. I mean, 
I researched hermits. I spent like a year researching historical hermits. And there is, as hard as this is to believe, there's probably no other known examples in all of human history of someone who had been completely alone for that long, 27 years, without even talking, with even any help at all. There's the survival story, which is confounding. There's the myth that builds up in people's reactions, how, you know, it's like, I think I could work as a journalist for a hundred years and never come across anything as riveting as this. So what was fascinating, I mean, there's so much fascinating about this, let me just say, because as I said, you just keep turning the pages and being more and more confounded by all of this, is that as the years passed, the only way that he interacted, and that's, I'm not using the word right, because he came into the realm where other people lived, but of course they weren't there when he did it, was to break into the homes of summer campers and a summer camp site because he needed food and he would take what he needed to survive. And that got to be so crazy because people were confounded about how did he get in, how did he get out, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if you would read just an excerpt which gives a sense in the book of just how frustrating this was. This is page 26. Yeah, I'm happy to read an excerpt. Can I, can okay. I comment a little bit on his thieving? Sure. I feel warmly about Christopher Knight, and sometimes I speak warmly about him. But the truth is, he told me not to romanticize him. And in the book, I try my hardest not to. He was a thief. He broke into second homes and cabins a thousand times. And he really, you know, although he had a code, he never shattered a window. He never kicked in a door. He only stole things like hamburger meat and batteries and flashlights and, of course, books. But he did torment the people of North Pond, and he, you know, he, he warned me himself to be careful about romanticizing him. Anyway, one summer, a family had an idea. They taped a pen on a string to the front door along with a handwritten note. Please don't break in. Tell me what you need, and I'll leave it out for you. This sparked a small fad, and soon a half dozen cabins had notes fluttering from their doors. Other residents hung shopping bags of books on their doorknobs like donations to a school fundraiser. There was no reply to the notes. None of the shopping bags were touched. The break-ins continued. A sleeping bag, an insulated snowmobile suit, a year's worth of National Geographic magazines, batteries and more batteries, including the blocky ones from cars and boats and ATVs. The same couple who lost their mattress had a backpack stolen, which triggered a panic. That was where they'd hidden their passports. Then they saw that the burglar had removed the passports and placed them in a closet before departing with the pack. Many families eventually decided to reinforce their cabins. They installed alarm systems, motion lights, stronger windows, sturdier doors. Some spent thousands of dollars. A new phrase joined the lexicon of the lakes, hermit-proofing. And an unfamiliar tinge of distrust settled over the community. Families that never locked their doors began locking them. Two cousins, who owned nearby cabins, each thought the other was taking his propane. Several people blamed themselves for constantly misplacing items and half-jokingly worried that they were beginning to lose their minds. One man suspected his own son of burglary. The mattress and backpack couple decided that every time they left their cabin, even for an hour, they had to latch all the windows and set the bolt, no matter how stuffy it got inside. At the end of summer, one man returned from the hardware store with 50 sheets of plywood and a Makita screw gun and used every one of his thousand screws to entomb his cabin for winter. I mean, I just think it's amazing. I wanted people to hear the detail because it just startled me. I mean, it's so amazing. And as we learn later, he never 
responded to the offers of just tell us what you want just because he had his own way of doing it. He had, in his own mind, reconciled what he needed to do to steal food, and he wasn't going to have even that interaction with people from whom he was stealing. So Michael Finkel, author of The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit, you decided to reach out to him. And what made you think he might respond? Or what do you think about how you reached out to him got him to respond to you? So I read about Christopher Knight's arrest and was, as I mentioned, obsessed and hooked and was waiting to see what he would say. What would he say about the world? What would he say about his hermitage? Anything at all. And I waited for a month, and he said nothing. I'd heard that like 500 journalists tried to contact him, and I was, you know, documentary film team came to Maine. It was a, it was a circus, according to the person who was in charge of the jail. And one night uh, in my house in Montana, after my kids and my wife were asleep, I just decided I just had to scratch this itch. I had to write him a letter, and I'm a little old-fashioned. I don't know, know if you remember these things called um, envelopes. Uh, stamps. You know, they used to have them back in the day. Anyway, I decided to write Chris Knight a letter by hand on paper. I told him that I was a journalist. I sent him a photocopy of my article, and I said everything I read about him only sparked in me more questions, and I mailed it to the Kennebec County Jail in central Maine and thought, well, I probably won't hear back, but that's got at least something out of my head that I couldn't get out of my head. But he answered. To my surprise... About two weeks later, a white envelope appeared in my mailbox, and lo and behold, Christopher Knight wrote back and shared to me some of the first things he had shared with the world in 27 years. And from the, from the first paragraph of his first letter, I knew several things about Chris Knight. First of all, he had a lively, almost incredibly bright mind, the way he used words, his vocabulary. It thrilled the writer in me immediately. Secondly, he did have a sense of humor. You know, he had mentioned all those books he'd stolen. And so in my first letter to him, I said, you know, I liked Ernest Hemingway. And the man who said nothing for 27 years, one of the first things he decides to do is engage in literary criticism and told me he felt quote, rather lukewarm about Hemingway, unquote, which made me smile and laugh like, and then the third thing I knew from the first letter was that this man had one heck of a story to tell. That is just so incredible. So then you decided to just actually make physical contact or as one could, because he's in jail at this point, and you just, on a whim, fly to Maine. Yeah, Chris Knight and I exchanged handwritten letters for the course of a summer, and again, not romanticizing Knight, but to tell you, a man who spent 27 years completely free in the forest, you can imagine what that would be like to be suddenly locked in a cage in jail. He told me, heartbreakingly, that in two months in jail, he felt like he'd lost his sanity more than he had in three decades in the woods, and in his final letter to me, just said he was too upset to even write anymore. And then he said goodbye. And I was, I was saddened. And then I decided to take a chance and fly from my home in Montana to the jail in Maine and just checked in at the visiting booth of the jail. And I had no idea if he would agree to see me. And I waited there for a while. And lo and behold, a guard came out and said, you know, night. And I stood up and he, uh, the guard wanded me front and back to see if I had any weapons and then opened the door to a visiting room, closed it behind me, and as my heart is beating quite rapidly, I see on the other side of the visiting booth, sealed off behind a pane of shatterproof plastic, is Christopher Knight. 
that's really, I mean, the moment is described beautifully and it's amazing. And from there, I'm skipping ahead, you have ongoing interaction with him, though it's off and on and you never know if it's going to happen or not. And in the meantime, here he is, this guy who lived so alone and wanted to be alone, is getting all of this attention. So not only, as you've said, is he in jail, but he's getting the one thing he didn't want, which is all of this attention. Talk about that a little bit, if you will. I mean, the man who wanted to live a life completely anonymously was, as the district attorney said, you know, the most famous person in the state of Maine. And, you know, I'm a human, too. It's not like I'm a pit bull of a journalist. I felt morally unclear, too. I thought, you know, Chris Knight responded to all my letters without any cajoling on my part, and he agreed to meet me nine times in jail and one time at his house. And Knight, if there's anything I can say about him, has a spectacularly impressive mind. He uh, could remember, for example, he said he didn't have a photographic memory. He just remembered everything. He could literally remember everything about all the thousand books he'd read. He knew things from theoretical physics to how to fix an electrical problem. And he's also great at game theory. He's, I believe he decided that by telling me his story, by telling one person his story, he could, in a strange way, have more privacy. He could say exactly what he wanted to say and then not speak with anyone else. He called me his Boswell, his biographer. He granted me his story. And I took that extremely seriously. I spent three years to write a 191-page book. I wanted every line to be as accurate and as honest as possible. That was essential to me. I didn't write the book for Chris Knight, but I wrote it. I wanted to honor his story. And the only thing he asked in return, he's getting no money from the book. Uh, One of his, the Pine Tree Camp where he broke into is receiving some of the proceeds. But the only thing he asked me to do after giving me a story was to leave him alone. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Michael Finkel, author of The Stranger in the Woods, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. It's our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club, and it is quite an extraordinary story. I want you to read another section because the book is not only his story, but you spent some time going beyond him to talk about really trying to examine why he would, but really what does solitude mean to other people who've sort of set themselves off in a way kind of like him? Why would anybody do all these other just questions that one has in one's mind as you read this, like why, 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 and could I do that, and who does this, and all of this stuff, which I thought was interesting. But I wanted you to read the last time that you spoke with him. This is on page 179. You've just mentioned how many times you interacted with him, and I thought this is important. Yeah, thank you. And before (laughs) I read that, you know, solitude is such a fascinating subject. Most of us, Callie, I'm going to assume you and me are people, people. We really don't like to be alone. As a species, we don't like to be alone. We Most people I've met have never even spent a single day by themselves. I spent a grand total of two for my record as without seeing anyone. But throughout history, there's been a few people that have wanted to be by themselves, and those people made a spectacular difference in the world for the rest of us. In religious terms, you know, Jesus spent 40 days alone. Muhammad spent time alone in his cave. Buddha spent time alone, and the religions they brought back are now followed by three billion people. Einstein called himself a loner in daily life. Michelangelo had no friends. Isaac Newton, the inventor of modern physics, never had any friends and died celibate. So people who wanted to be alone, who had that desire, have changed the world. Anyway, 
That was my preamble, sorry, for being so No, I, I love that, yeah. Page 179. Mm-hmm. Everyone I'd spoken with in his circle, without exception, had exclaimed how ably he was adjusting. He appears healthy, and his skin has nice color. He's still thin, the end of his belt dangles, but not emaciated like he once was. The lack of a beard skews him younger. He's been to a dentist. One tooth has been removed, I see, and the rest are shiny and clean. But one of the first things he says is that the optimistic face he's displayed in public is false. Another mask. In truth, he's hurting. I'm not doing very well, he admits, gazing over my shoulder in his usual manner. Nobody understands him, he tells me. People constantly take offense at what he says. They misconstrue me as arrogant. I feel like I'm in high school all over again. He sacrificed everything else in the world for complete autonomy, and now he's nearly 50 years old and not allowed to make simple decisions for himself. Wow. You know, the words just got to me, and I I felt so much for him. Even as understanding I could never have done that, I really felt for him. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I couldn't help it, too. And even, like, the police officers that arrested him, like, especially Sergeant Hughes, this law and order guy who doesn't stand for anyone breaking the law, just arrested a man who confessed to a thousand felonies, told me that within a few minutes of meeting him, he just sort of melted. The man could not tell a lie. He admitted to everything. He never had a weapon. He never injured anyone physically. You know, one of the, one of the questions that this book brings up is what do we do with someone who just doesn't fit into the world? You know, if you're a murderer, sure, we put you in jail. If you're clearly mentally unstable, then we have therapy for you. But what about a person like Chris Knight, who's completely sane and just doesn't fit in? We have no place for that kind of person. I wondered, as I was uh, listening, and uh, you're listening to my guest, Michael Finkel, author of The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit, if he could have been some of those people that end up in some towns, the grumpy old lady who lives alone or the grumpy old guy and, you know, kids throw rocks at the windows and say, ooh, they never come out or they're kind of, and in that way have sort of been in town, if you will, but still alone. Well, I wonder if that would have worked for him or if the people knew that he was not going to harm them, would they have left him alone? Because you couldn't really find where he lived. I'm not going to say why. You have to read the book to find out. But <laughs> but could that have worked if people actually knew he was there? Would they have left him alone? Yeah, I mean, he, like the sort of Boo Radley character <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking uh, in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, yeah, I mean, Central Maine is actually kind of a wonderful part of the world where eccentrics like Chris Knight can live without being disturbed. He left the world at age 20, and uh, that's something, I mean, in, in the history of people that go away, most people wait until they're much, much older. He left the world at 20 and never again had any advice from an elder, which I find startling. I'm 48 years old, and I still call my father for advice from time to time. And uh, he had this idea for his life that was so radical and so different, and yet he fulfilled his vision, I think more fully, and most of us will ever fulfill our vision for a perfect life. And so he just, I feel like he had to do it this way. And despite all the suffering, I feel like when he described to me his life, he really expressed this deep sense of satisfaction with his choices. He was really content in the choice he made. It seems so extreme, but he expressed more satisfaction with his life than most people I meet in the world outside here. 
We should say that as the book ends, you know, all of us who have become enthralled with the story want to know what's going on, what's happening. And you make it very clear, first you don't tell us, and then you make it clear, very clear that he really, that the worst thing that anybody could do would be to try to find him, leave him alone wherever he is, and just read the story and take away from it what you will. So just speak about that a little bit if you would. I mean, I'm happy to say that the ending is at least somewhat hopeful. It's not like a Chris McCandless into the wild thing. Chris Knight is a survivor. He managed to obviously survive 27 years in the wilderness. He survived being in jail. And he has staked out a very private life for himself in central Maine and, of course, asked that no one bothers him. And I hope that no one will. I mean, the people of Maine are so understanding of privacy There were things I asked him that he didn't want to answer. And, I mean, what are you going to say to a person who can go silent for 27 years? You just, he told me exactly what he wanted to tell me and his insights. You know, I feel like I'm not doing them justice. He has such a beautiful, poetic way of speaking. I tried to capture it in the book. I'm not doing so well here on the radio. But, again, the ending is semi-hopeful. He's going to be okay. He's always going to pine and wish that he could live again in the forest, but he probably won't be able to. Well, Michael Finkel, I have to tell you, you've written a book. It is something. And it leaves, stays with you, and I have been telling everybody about it. And I know that other people will find it as well because it really just stirs so much on so many levels. Aside from Chris Knight's own story, it just really asks a lot of us who read it. And I thank you for writing it. Man, thank you so much. Michael Finkel is the author of The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. It's our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find links to the stories we discussed today on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app or take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Aswahe is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.